Max, is it fair to say that 2024 has not been kind to journalism so far? Uh, I think that that is extremely fair to say, if not uh, an understatement. Max Tani reports on the media over at Semaphore. And yeah, this is going to be a show with two journalists talking about journalism. But seriously, the last few weeks have been rough. How many journalists do you personally know who have gotten laid off in like the last six months? It's, I mean, it's probably too numerous to count. I, I probably know more because I cover uh, media and uh, news for a living. Um, but I... It feels a little bit like Survivor out here. Exactly. Allow me to just run the numbers here. The Los Angeles Times laid off 20% of its staff. Time Magazine, 15%. The music site, Pitchfork, has for all intents and purposes vaporized. So is Sports Illustrated. I could go on. The details of these layoffs are pretty horrific. One journalist said they got canned while on a work trip to a remote lighthouse in Oregon. They had to text the boss and ask, "Uh, is my company card still going to cover my flight home? Reporters at The Messenger learned their jobs were kaput after the New York Times reported it. Some of them had been wondering what was up after they saw a little extra money in their bank accounts. It turns out they were being reimbursed for their vacation days before payroll shut down. To be frank, journalism has been in trouble for a while. But one of the more surprising things about what's happening now is how deep the cuts are going. Nearly half of the LA Times Washington Bureau got let go. And there's about to be a presidential election. It felt to me like journalism was kind of hanging on until this year, a presidential election year. Because it was like, if we can just get there, we'll just get the juice of the election. Do you, do you think that's a fair way to put it? I think that's I think that's totally fair. And I think that that actually mirrors the way that a lot of people um, in our business, in our industry, thought things were going to play out. Has the juice of the election year materialized? It really hasn't. Today on the show, more and more journalists are finding themselves out of a job. Why an election year is not going to save them, no matter how existential the threat. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The first thing Max Tani wanted to emphasize when we started talking about how this election year is connected to journalism layoffs is how important elections have historically been for reporters. Every four years, there's a cycle, reliable as the seasons. A bunch of politicians run for president, and newsrooms staff up to cover them. Simple. The problem is that Donald Trump messed with this cycle. When he first ran for president, this seemed like it could be a good thing. Talking or writing about Trump attracted viewers and readers. 
It was good for journalism, or at least the bottom line. Eventually, this phenomenon even got a name, the Trump bump. It went insane. It went completely, completely nuts. 2016, I was basically a breaking politics reporter at a Business Insider, my one of my first full-time jobs covering politics. And uh, I remember when Trump got into the race and I wrote a few stories about comments that, that he made. And you just remember what the web traffic looked like on these stories. Just straight writing through some of the comments that he would make at rallies would get you hundreds of thousands of views. You know, on, and this is on Business Insider. This was not on the New York Times or ABC or NBC or some of these big outlets that already have these, this built-in traffic. This was in, you know, a digital news startup that was kind of just scrapping. I imagine as a young journalist, you kind of felt like, <laughs> not like I'm a god, but like, wow, <laughs> I really did something because that traffic was so coveted. Absolutely. It was really important for the business. Uh, and I think that it was exciting uh, for people in our industry that that there's this, essentially this guaranteed uh, that anything that was that, that Trump was going to say was of huge interest to a lot of people who may have been passive news consumers, uh, not the kind of core engaged audience who reads everything about politics. And it became this cycle, right? Like, it's like people realized, like, oh, this is getting attention, started covering more of it. And then it got wrapped into how news sites and newspapers advertised what they were doing. Like, you need to come to us because we have the content you want. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think also the nature of the coverage changed as well over the course of the 2016 primary. I think at first it was covered as something of a, uh, you know, of uh, of an amusement and a bizarre spectacle. The guy from The Apprentice is running for president. The rest of the year. That's what we don't know. How much of it is Trump we tapping into the legitimate anger and frustration in the Republican Party? How much of it is celebrity and reality television? Uh, what we do know is this, is that he used the word schlong there against Hillary Clinton. He says that's a common term in politics. Uh, no, it is not. And, uh, you know, the Huffington Post uh, put Trump in its entertainment section. Controversially. Yes, con- controversially at the time, but it was uh, it was a huge boon for the industry. Les Moonves, who was running CBS at the time, you know, famously said, uh, you know, Trump may not be good for the country, but he's damn good for CBS. And that was the attitude that I think a lot of people in, in the news business had, whether they wanted to admit it or not, that he was a rising tide that was lifting all boats and was helping these news networks post pretty massive ratings uh, and were was helping to boost kind of these nascent digital subscriptions programs for uh, news organizations and bringing in uh, lots and lots and lots and lots of traffic to uh, digital media only outlets. Did someone coin the phrase Trump bump for what was happening? <laughs> I don't really know if I don't I'm not sure I can't remember who, who coined it, but it was certainly something that everybody immediately in the business understood just because stories about Trump uh, were 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 interesting, more interesting to the public than most normal political stories. And the bump was durable. Like it, when Trump was president, the bump continued because, I mean, the way that a producer on this show once put it was like every day, the story is like Godzilla's on this building. What is Godzilla doing? What is this building? <laughs> like it's like because everything was seemed so urgent. It, it didn't become, it wasn't just the election. It was the presidency itself. Yeah. Obviously, the stakes were different when Trump became president versus when he was a candidate on the ballot. And uh, so 
when he would say things or or do things, they were inherently newsworthy, even in a way that they weren't when he was a presidential candidate. Um, you know, there were a lot of debates inside newsrooms about how to, you know, how to cover Trump and when to take his comments live and when to not take his comments live. Tonight's dueling town hall sparked fresh criticism about how the mainstream news media are covering the election and whether or not they are being too deferential. Those concerns date back to the 2016 presidential election, when then-candidate Donald Trump was given a disproportionate amount of airtime. And so what we saw during the campaign in terms of this elevated level of interest continued on uh, into his into his presidency and helped a lot of places that were otherwise actually in trouble post, uh, you know, really remarkable audience numbers. MSNBC posted some of its best ratings of its existence. Uh, and this was at a time that when people's TV habits were, were actually changing. More people were cutting the cord, were getting rid of their cable subscriptions. And despite changing viewership habits, uh, these news networks, these cable news networks were still posting these amazingly high uh, ratings numbers in the three, four millions on certain nights. Yeah. And just to add to those numbers, I mean, like the New York Times told Slate they closed out 2017 with 3.4 million subscribers, but they doubled that by the end of 2020 at the end of Trump's term, more than doubled that. Subscribers to The Washington Post tripled over the course of Trump's presidency. So like real, real impacts. Yeah, it was a rising tide that did lift the boats of, in particular, the big news outlets that had a lot of credibility that broke stories about Trump related to the Mueller investigation around his ties to Russia, um, you know, around some of his more controversial and inflammatory statements. And uh, it was really quite remarkable the way in which it was able to uh, really quite single-handedly boost audience numbers in a really, really tangible, measurable way. What happened to all these gains after 2020 when Biden took office? Well, part of Biden's pitch to America specifically was, if you elect me, essentially, it's a return to normalcy. You won't have to pay attention to the news uh, you know, all the time. Not that everybody was, but a lot more people were paying attention than normal. Uh, and that was actually inherently part of his pitch to voters. And it worked pretty much as soon as he assumed office in 2021, we began to see a decline in those viewership numbers. We actually saw quite remarkably uh, a reversal in subscription numbers, a real churn from uh, from the highs of 2020. The Washington Post, uh, as you mentioned, had 3 million subscribers at the end of 2020. It's now down to 2.5 million. So, I mean, that's a pretty remarkable, huge drop-off and actually contributes to some of the, the issues we're seeing in the news today. But I mean, essentially, it worked. Biden is not as interesting or compelling uh, to news consumers writ large, and it's had an actual huge impact on audiences and therefore the businesses of these news organizations. It's funny. I'm thinking of, um, you know, those thanks Joe Biden stickers that were showing up on gas pumps for a while (laughs) (laughs) when the gas prices were going up. I'm like, who's going to slap one of those on a newspaper? Yes, on Chartbeat, the uh, thing that you use to monitor uh, traffic. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Baked into the whole Trump bump idea, and you can see it in that Les Moonves quote that you gave a little bit earlier, is the idea that the Trump bump isn't really a good thing entirely. Like, the quote from Moonves was something along the lines of, Trump is bad for democracy, but good for business. So it's like, 
I hear that. And I think news leaders knew this was a sugar high. They knew that journalism and maybe even democracy was getting diabetes from it. And yet they couldn't help themselves. Given all that, was there any wariness from news executives about embracing a Trump bump in 2024? I think certainly there was more caution among, in particular, the television news networks and some places like the New York Times uh, and the Washington Post. Uh, but, I, but <laughs> I mean, it's 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 difficult, right? Because news is such a low margin business. It's a it's built on, on the back of advertising, and advertising has been cannibalized by Google and Facebook. Uh, you know, those Instagram ads that you're getting, you know, those are the types of ads that used to basically power your local newspaper in some ways. And so it, it's this really difficult balance where the media, just like many consumers, is a bit tired of Trump's shtick. They he's kind of no longer news in the sense that what he sa- when he says something kind of crazy, if somebody has been saying something crazy for, you know, 7 years, is that still news? We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Going into the 2024 presidential election, there were always questions about how much the Trump bump would return and whether journalists should really rely on it. But Max Tani says whether news organizations wanted a bump or not, they seemed to revert to form. That meant the usual election year trappings, debates, town halls. And then they ran smack into a Trump slump. As Donald Trump's candidacy began to seem more and more inevitable, Ratings went down. Pretty soon, ABC canceled a candidate debate they were planning, and then CNN did the same. Around this time, Max traveled to New Hampshire to see what all this looked like on the ground. I wanted to go to New Hampshire in the week between the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary, which traditionally is ground zero for uh, the the U.S. national news media for a week. Everybody uh, swoops in. Every major news organization dispatches too many people to go and cover it. Uh, <laughs> because this is typically where the national news narratives reset, right? If someone is surprisingly strong coming out of Iowa, it 
changes the dynamic of the race. If someone is surprisingly weak coming out of Iowa, it changes the dynamic of uh, the race. These narratives that have been basically hypothetical uh, or based on you know polling numbers are finally put to the test, and you get to see that essentially on the ground. You know, in the week between these caucuses and the New Hampshire primaries. And that creates this mini economy for the city of Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, really based around the Doubletree Hotel, which is uh, you know, one of the biggest hotels in the city. It's where all the TV networks set up shop. Uh, you know, this is a, a room at the Doubletree in Manchester, New Hampshire, in uh, a typical week in January or February is about $100, $110 a night. During this week, it can be close to $800 uh, you know, or, or more, or usually sells out. Yeah, $800 for a hotel in, in Manchester, New Hampshire in February. Frigid is, uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's slightly, slightly higher than uh, the kind of uh, surrounding uh, parts of the, uh, the Northeast. Um, but basically this year, after Trump's overperformance in Iowa, that really didn't materialize on the ground in the same way that it did in, in 2016. The bar at the Doubletree typically stays open an extra four hours during that week because there are a bunch of political journalists and campaign officials who essentially have, uh, you know, are all uh, paying for their stay on someone else's card. And so they'll go down and, you know, uh, and, and have drinks and, and, and catch up. And uh, it's usually quite a lively atmosphere. And so when I rolled in five days before the primary and, uh, you know, went to go and, uh, you know, hopefully reunite with colleagues or friends, people I know from the political world, there's essentially nobody there. And that's because the news media has recognized what I think most Americans have recognized, which is uh, that barring some sort of extreme event, it will almost certainly be a rematch between Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. And so if that's the case, why are we sending 50 people to to New Hampshire to go and talk to voters and, um, you know, stand out in, in, in the freezing colds? But as you said, the whole machinery of journalism is set up for these four-year cycles. So <laughs> it's kind of like the news business is in this little like hole of its own making. <laughs> that certainly is true. And I think in a traditional, uh, traditionally it hasn't really been a problem because politics tends to reset itself. The party that loses the presidential election oftentimes takes a look in the mirror and says, you know what, voters rejected that thing that we just put in front of them. Let's put something new in front of them. But now we're stuck. <laughs> but now we are, for various reasons, we're, we're stuck. And, and so that's, uh, you know, that's something that I think a lot of people in the country obviously aren't happy about. And I think it's something that's detrimental to the news business, which relies on covering new candidates as these kind of new phenomenons. It relies on introducing people's, people to things about candidates' lives and old things from their voting records that they didn't know about, or, you know, these new figures doing things that we didn't, uh, no, we wouldn't have predicted about them. When you have two candidates who have both been in public life since their 20s, both of them, and who are both, uh, you know, one of them is in his 80s, one of them is uh, nearly there. These aren't people who are changing or doing things that people haven't seen before. And I think that that creates challenges for the news business of which new is part of the word. Okay, so you're painting a pretty bracing picture of a real cold stop for the Trump bump. But the thing is, by the time the Trump bump happened in the news industry, I can't help but think about how the industry had been in decline for a long time for a lot of reasons, like advertising revenue is getting siphoned off by digital outlets. 
There was this over-reliance on platforms like Facebook to boost journalistic content. So to me, I look at the Trump bump and what happened there, and I see this rush of income that masked deeper problems in the news industry. It's almost like an emperor's new clothes moment now, now that it's gone. I think that's correct. I think that what we're seeing now is, uh, and what we've seen over the past several years, is very much something that there were some deeper, deeper problems that were essentially postponed by Trump. The pace of technological change has completely revolutionized the media business, um, and it's changed people's habits when it comes to to news consumption. Um, I think that it masked the Trump bump and interest in Trump news masked uh, a lot of declines that were set or postponed a lot of declines that were inevitably going to happen as soon as people lost interest in him. Is there some big swing out there that fixes this problem? Like they, I know that there are ideas out there. You know, we've had uh, billionaires come in and take over newspapers, and the idea was, okay, well, maybe the billionaires are going to do it, maybe nonprofit models. Some people have said, okay, places like Google and Meta should be paying news outlets for their content because essentially those companies are valuable because of the news content they help surface. I personally don't think that there's going to be a silver bullet that fixes news. I, I in particular, am slightly skeptical of the uh, of the tech outlet, you know, tech big tech companies should just pay the bill uh, because we've actually seen that <laughs> what big tech companies will do in the places where they are required to uh, to pay news organizations, essentially, you know, fees for service. Yeah, Australia does this, right? Australia and Canada both do this, and they basically say, cool, great, we're not posting this anymore. Facebook in Canada and in Australia, they just don't, they just basically don't surface news content. So I, I don't think that that's a silver bullet. I think, look, the the thing to me that gives me a little bit of hope in the way that I think that most, a lot of news organizations are moving towards the ones that are, 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 are smart is re discovering and figuring out how to cultivate strong bonds with the audiences that are particularly interested in in those outlets. I think, you know, <laughs> we could take Slate as an example. Slate Plus, uh, you know, is a is is a really great line of business for Slate because it is a place where people who love the content uh, can pay essentially extra for it. And I think that, you know, you can develop those people who are Slate Plus subscribers can develop closer bonds with the journalists that are, you know, or podcasters that are working at Slate. I don't know if it's like a perfect example, but a lot of news organizations and media companies are essentially, because they cannot reach the massive numbers that they need, the scale that they need to compete with some of the big tech platforms for advertising, what they can do is is get these closer, develop these closer bonds uh, with the audiences who really, really care about and rely on their perspective and their news coverage. And so how I see it is news organizations are going to have to get smarter about managing their costs. They might not be as big as they used to, but as long as they continue to uh, figure out ways to develop, uh, you know, close ties to their audience to remain in- essential to the people who are willing to pay and engage with news. I think that there is still going to be hope for journalism and and for media. Max Tani, I'm super grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Mary. It was fun. 
I feel like I have to say I did not tell you to plug Slate Plus. <laughs> I I will say I'm a, you know, <laughs> full disclosure, I'm a Slate Plus member. Bless you, Max. Max Tani is a media reporter at Semaphore. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.